Last summer, uh, I took some time off, and uh, some of it had to do with stress and depression related, and so I uh, was taking some time off, and I had talked to lots of different people, some counselors, other pastors, and others, and they had all recommended different books to me. Hey, this helped me. This one helped me when I was struggling with those kinds of things in ministry, and so I, I bought a few of those books, and I started to read them as I was sitting on the side of a baseball field or uh, just sitting at home uh, alone for a little while. I did, really enjoyed reading uh, several of the books. It's one called Spurgeon's Sorrows that was particularly helpful. So if you ever deal with those sorts of things, I could really recommend that book to you, Spurgeon's Sorrows. But while I was reading these books, I found that there was something similar between a lot of them. And that was, uh, they said, listen, if you're struggling with anxiety or lack of peace, one of the things you should do is to visualize or remember the places in your life where you haven't had that, where you've had freedom from that, where you've had peace and been free from anxiety? Was there a certain location or a certain kind of thing you were doing that led to that kind of feeling of well-being? Some of the books got a little cheesy. Uh, I don't know if you've read a book before where they say stuff like, uh, close your eyes and you know, visualize that now. Whenever I come across that in a book, I just go to the next page, right? Because whatever, I'm not going to do it. But I've bottom of the barrel kind of feelings of... So I decided that I would do this. So I, was, I remember sitting there thinking, I, just, I look so stupid on the side of my bed or at the side of the baseball field, looking, you know, closing my eyes. And I started to visualize, okay, where, where in my life have I been where I've had no anxiety? Okay. Well, there was a place, uh, my parents used to live on Whidbey Island, which is this uh, beautiful step-back-in-time kind of island off the coast of Seattle, and uh, I remember going from the fair, the Seattle area, you get on the ferry, there's people all over the place in the area where you have to, Mukilteo, where you have to get the ferry, and then you come across, and you get off the ferry, and when you're getting off the ferry, there's this sense when you come onto Whidbey Island, like, you're like, oh, because all the people are gone. And my parents used to have a house that overlooked uh, Admiralty Inlet, and uh, you could actually see Victoria through the cut. Uh, it was across from a place called Port Townsend, and so for their house was right on the cliff that overlooked the, the water, and they could see this, the, the Olympic Mountains in the distance. I remember going there and standing in their backyard and just seeing this enormous expanse and just feeling, oh, oh, just relaxed. There was a little forest that was kind of near their house, and so if you went for a walk, you could actually walk through this forest and sit kind of on the edge of the cliff where the trees came up and sit on these old logs and look through the trees across to these massive mountains and the, and the water in front of you. And I remember feeling a sense of well-being and peace and happiness. You could do all those things usually when I didn't have kids. Uh, when I started having kids, I, I realized that even though you got on the ferry to come across, as soon as you came across... Uh, you didn't leave the stress behind because the stress was in the back seat. <laughs> and so you get there, and so as a, as a father, I've, I've started, I started to realize early on that there were certain places in the house you could go to be away from the, from the children, and the bathroom was my favorite spot. If you're a, if you're a new parent here, a new father here, I'm just going to you wonder, you, I know as a, as, a, as a young man, you probably wonder why your father spent so much time in the bathroom. I'm going to tell you that it is a lovely safe space for you, right? <laughs> Kids might knock on the door. You can say, I'm busy. You could be there for a good hour and uh, whatever you need. Where is it that you've been that gives you peace? 
What, what situation have you been in where you've had that sense of well-being and calm? Most of the time, if I'm really honest, when I answer the question, even as I've given you some examples, most of the time my answer to that question is, the place I feel most calm is where people are not. Right? I mean, if, you, if I can get away from it all, and people, we tell each other that, just go find a place to get away from it all so you can come back and be in it, in it again, and then go away from it all. You get the peace when you go away, and then you come back, and you get stressed out, and then you go away from it all. And then you come back, and this is life, right? That would work, of course, if you, if you have inner peace just naturally when you go away. But if you're somebody like me who sometimes struggles with anxiety, when I'm all alone and my wife is gone or my kids are gone and I'm sitting there all alone on the side of my bed, I start to freak out a little bit about how am I going to pay for all this and are they going to turn out like I want them to and where are they anyway? (laughs) I've learned in my life that the problem that I have is that wherever I go, there I am. And I am the problem. So the question I have is, is it possible to have a peace in your heart, a peace between people in this life? Can you have that? Some people do yoga. Some people do meditation to find it. Can you have, does the Bible give us anything like that, any kind of promise that God can give that? I bring this up because uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 8, uses the word peace about when Jesus came, when Christmas was announced for the first time, one of the promises was that peace would ensue. So here's how this passage reads. I know you've, you've heard it from the, ma- the lips of Linus before, but I'll read it myself. There was shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. So that's the announcement of heaven about what Jesus is supposed to bring. We give glory to God because of this great moment. The angels are singing and peace on earth among those on whom his favor rests. So what kind of peace are we talking about here? Jesus promises, God promises that with the coming of Jesus There will be peace. What kind of peace are we talking about? I think the scriptures actually talk about peace in three different ways, the kinds of peace that Jesus brings in three different ways. One, he he brings peace with God. Second, he brings peace with others. And third, he peace within me. Now, uh, you'll know that we are in a sermon series just around Christmas time called A Better Gift. And the idea around this is that we think that Jesus is a better gift than anything you're gonna get this Christmas at all. He's a better hope, he's a better peace, he's a better joy, he's a better love than anything that you could ever imagine. And so we're taking each week and thinking about those things. Last week you talked about hope, this week we're going to talk about peace, next week joy. Usually when when I preach sermons, uh, I take a passage of scripture like the one I just read and like explain it verse and line by line. 
This week's a little different. It's a little more topical. So I, I want to deal with this subject with those three headings I just gave, right? Uh, we can have peace with God, we can have peace with others, and we can have peace with ourselves. And we'll just look to the scriptures in general and see if we can find some, some hints regarding what the Bible promises along those lines, okay? So here's the first of those. Uh, Jesus gives us peace with God. I want to teach you a little bit of theology real quick here, okay? Uh, a couple theological terms that you can use in daily life to try to impress all your friends. Uh, we believe that God is transcendent. It's not a word that is used very often these days. Transcendent. Most of us know what it means, though. It means, if, if I say something is tran- a transcendent experience, I mean that it is high and glorious and magnificent. So by, by tr- when we say God is transcendent, we mean that he is far off, wholly other than us, magnificent and glorious and remarkable. And the Bible teaches this. So you, you might remember, if you've been around the Bible much, you, you might remember there's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where God is giving the law on the top of Mount Sinai. And he says to the people, don't touch the mountain, people of Israel. Moses can come up the mountain because I invited him, but the rest of you stay away. Because if you touch the mountain, you're going to die. You don't, you don't just stumble up to God. Hey, God, how's it going? That's, that's not what I'm like, he says. I'm transcendent. I'm wholly other. I'm different than you. Magnificently different. Moses himself later on says, Lord, I, I, need, I need to see your face. I need to have a, a guarantee that you're going to stick around with us. So can you show me your glory? And God says, look, I can't, if I showed you my glory, you'd die. you just right there. Keel over, because I'm that magnificent. But I can't hide you behind this rock over here, and I will go by, and then you can see what comes after me. You see my back, but you can't see my face, because I'm too magnificent. I'm transcendent. Go into the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, or any great old church. You walk in there, and you, and you, you look up, and you realize the architecture itself is trying to draw you into an understanding of what God's like, and that is that he's transcendent. The ceilings are really high. You feel very small standing in the middle of that cathedral, and that's on purpose. People who designed it wanted you to feel small because you are small, and God is not. He's transcendent and magnificent. But he's not only transcendent. He's also imminent. And imminent means near. He's he's come close. We talk about the imminence of God. We're talking about the Jesus in the manger, which is crazy, right? I mean, this transcendent, magnificent, holy other God has become, what, a baby that mules could step on, that that, that his mother could hold in his arms. Is what we celebrate at Christmas time is the imminence of God. He's a friend, we say, who walks with me and talks with me along life's merry way. That's a reference to a Gaither song. If you've never heard it, be thankful. <laughs> but he's thinking the language. He, he walks with me and he talks with me. That's, that's the imminence. It's a, it's a nearness to us. We can err, though. See, those are two aspects of God's character that you don't want to overemphasize to the expense of the other. You have to hold those in tension. You have to say, look, yes, God is transcendent and magnificent and holy other, and yet he's come near in Christ, and he's my friend. Those are both true. 
He's dangerous and mighty, and he loves me, and he sticks closer to me than any brother. Those are, those are both true, and you don't want to overemphasize each one to the expense of the other. When you do, weird things happen. You start getting, okay, so if you believe that God is overly transcendent, meaning that you do that at the expense of his imminence, you end up saying, you end up thinking of God as this cosmic killjoy, or maybe he's gone and totally disinterested in your life. He's on a desert island somewhere a long way away fishing. He doesn't care about what's going on in your life. Or he's this cosmic Zeus who's up there with his thunderbolt and I will strike you down. Just the way some people view him, you know? I've got hell here. You want to go? Keep that up. But if you do the other way and you, you, you emphasize his imminence to the expense of his transcendence, you end up thinking that he's just the most lovely, lovely little buddy, just golden fleece diaper baby Jesus, right? It's a, no, don't worry about that movie. It's a reference to the movie. But you, you think he's cuddly and he's, he's a friend. In fact, somebody sent me yesterday, one of our pastors after... After I spoke last night, he sent me a picture. He said, oh, this is exactly what you're talking about. It was a little picture of a Jesus plush toy that you, could, like, you can give to your kids, and they just hug him. He's like a stuffy. Oh, Jesus, the stuffy. He's so nice. I can cuddle him at night. That's the way you start thinking about him, and he doesn't have power. He's just there to be your friend, give you some advice from time to time. His advice is not authoritative if you, if you think of him as only imminent to the expense of his transcendence. You see, so you can err on either side of these things. And the direction you often err, in my experience, has often been um, dictated by your age. So we, if you're older in the room, you probably remember the days where the pastor of the church stood up in front of everyone and said, you better honor God. You're not wearing a tie today. Would you show up to the queen and not wear a tie, Right? Because God is transcendent and you, you're entering a holy place. Are you gonna, like, are you really gonna dress with jeans and a stupid blue t-shirt and white shoes? Right? Or, on the other hand, if you're young, nowadays you're like, oh, God is so friendly. He's so sweet and kind and lovable and Jesus is my friend and he's there to help me all the time. It's the way that we talk about him in our culture. So we've had a move historically over the last number of years from a real emphasis on the transcendence of God to now that emphasis on the imminence of God. In fact, if I were to ask you which one of these two extremes do we err on the side of these days as a culture, as a society, which way do we view God? Is it transcendent or is it imminent? I think I can make a pretty good argument that as a culture at large, we believe God is imminent. We believe that he's friendly and nice and sweet, and so I'm going to try to prove that to you. Certainly in the Christian church, this is the way we view it, and so I'm going to show you a video really quick. This is uh, just prepare yourself. Keep your little armrest there. Just hold on to those armrests for just a second. This is actually from a, a Christian television show in the late 1970s, and there's a band that is going to play right now. Um, and they are gonna sing, they're going to sing a song. We cut it short. It's like a three-minute song. We cut it short to like 20 seconds because that's about all you can handle. Uh, this went viral on the internet uh, about 2008, 12 million views uh, on this. But I want you to hear just the words. The words are repeated. But the words and the, the approach just, anyway, play it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. Right? You would not be surprised if Vic Schellenberg showed up in that thing, would you? At all, would you? No. Hi, Jesus is a friend of mine. That's going to be stuck in your head, by the way. It's been stuck in my head the last few days. Oh, get it out, Lord. It's an earworm. Jesus is a friend of mine. But you see the, the kind of language. I mean, that, that's not, those are not the, the, the hymns by the Wesleys that they're singing there. It's, it's a song that is focused on the friendliness and the kindness of Jesus. And it's no, no shock that it happens in the late 1970s, which is when this kind of shift was going on in the, in the culture. From God being transcendent to now being imminent. We want to emphasize the imminence of God. And that's continued in our music these days. In the 1990s, a guy named Rich Mullins who sang a song, uh, Hold Me Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? Hold, hold me, Jesus? I mean, it sounds like something that my girlfriend would do, right? And so now, even more recently, we've, we've had a song, I love, I love, I love the way you hold me. Really? Well, yeah, that's true. It's absolutely true, but it's an emphasis of God that is at often the expense of the transcendence of God. There's a book that came out recently that's uh, the bestseller in Christian book lists for the last, I don't know how long. It's called Jesus Calling. Um, in it, is this, it's basically, here's how you can interact with Jesus. You can have this personal discussion with Jesus, sit down in a quiet place and start talking to Jesus, ask him some questions, and he will respond to you, and you can journal that out. What's interesting about it, though, is that whenever the questions are asked of Jesus, Jesus' responses in the book are always affirming. They're always positive. They're always, hey, I'm on your side, and I'm your friend, and I'm your buddy. There's very little confrontation because your friend isn't going to confront you. He's going to hold you. He's going to help you. That's the way we like to view him. Tim Keller used to tell a little bit of a story about a, a film that came out in the 1970s and then was redone in the early 2000s. It's called The Stepford Wives. You might have seen it. It's not a phenomenal movie, but the, the, the idea behind it is really interesting. Um, this couple moves from the city to Connecticut into this little area called Stepford. Uh, Stepford is the most beautiful street, and uh, as this couple gets to know their neighbors, they realize that uh, every wife is like the stereotypically perfect wife of those days, right? She does her husband's bidding. She is always dressed to the nines, she, you know, she's like June Cleaver, if you remember the Leave It to Beaver thing, with the pearls all the time and is always taking care of things and is always, oh, yes, dear, yes, dear, right? Doesn't spend too much money. She's perfect in all the ways from these guys. And the, the, the wife is, the new wife is like, what in the world is going on here? Like, these, these women are not like the people I've ever encountered. Well, come to find out, Apparently, the husbands in the community have been killing their wives and replacing them with robots, right? Perfect world. Um, just, I'm, geez, just kidding, right? And the robots do their bidding. So the Stepford wives were actually robots who, who do their bidding. They, had, they had, didn't like the wife, some characteristics of the wife they had, and so they created one in their image, the one that they wanted. Well, Tim Keller makes the point that I actually think that we have a Stepford God in our, in our society these days. That we, we actually think some of the character traits of God's, like transcendence, are things we don't really want to deal with. And so we, we create one in our image. He's the one who holds me. He's the one who's imminent, who's near. 
who gives me good advice and affirms me at every turn. He would never, ever say anything that would make me offended. My point here is that God is our affirming pal in our, in our society these days. He's the perfect friend, always there, always positive. But if you go to scripture, it teaches very differently that God is also a king against whom we continue to rebel. And he doesn't take rebellion lightly. And so you have these passages. Romans chapter two, verse five. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. James 4, speaking to people who profess to be Christians but actually are living their lives in more dedication to the world around them than they are to Christ. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Psalm 11, verse 4, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Not just the violence, he hates the wicked who perpetrate the violence. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. He's not a friend to everybody. God's not a buddy. He's not holding close everyone and there to affirm them all the time. He's not a Stepford God. He is a God who is an enemy to the wicked. It's a good thing you and I aren't wicked, huh? Huh? I mean, this would work out really well for us if we could stand before God and say, I'm not wicked, therefore I'm your friend. But... In fact, that Romans 2 passage right there, in the context of that Romans 2, the passage of the Apostle Paul actually gives kind of an illustration. He's like, look, God is basically recording everything that you've ever said or done. And all the rules that you believe in your life, he's recorded them all, and you are going to, he, he's going to judge you basically by the rules that you have said everyone else should, should keep. He doesn't even need his law. He can just say, listen, we'll just use your law and see if you've lived up to your own standard. So how you think you're gonna do there? I've, I've seen you drive, <laughs> right? In fact, there's an episode of a very popular TV show now that actually has a, the idea that, look, what, what would happen if we had a, an electric or a, a, the technology to just record everything we ever saw and like store it in the cloud. So we little little computer that we could attach to our, you know, visual receptors and it would record all the things that we see, all the things we say, right? ICBC would be no more because, right, because everybody, you'd always know the truth because you could video. What happened when he hit her? Well, there it is. We see it. But basically, this is what Paul's saying. You're gonna, you're, God's just gonna play the play the the picture of your life and all the rules that you had for yourself and how are you going to stand in the end? Are you going to be a hypocrite or not? And the answer is yes, you are, which counts you as part of the wicked, along with me. And what does God do with the wicked? Let me read it again. He will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. So my point here is that you and I are at war with God. Humanity is at war with God. You might not think that. Well, I don't feel that way. You are. 
We need someone to make peace. Enter Jesus, of course. Scripture says we can have that peace. Listen to Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviors, which is what I just described, right? But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. So what he's done is God has said, listen, I, I owe you judgment, burning sulfur and coals, but what I'm gonna do is take my very son and I'm gonna place him on a cross and I'm going to rain those fiery coals upon him. He willingly goes and receives that on your behalf and in exchange, I'm gonna take his righteousness and apply it to you. He receives the judgment for your wickedness. You receive the payment for his righteousness. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. There's bad news. You're an enemy of God. The good news is you're now a friend. Not because of anything you did or how great you are, but because only you expressed faith in him. In fact, that's what it says in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ticket, man. It's just expressing faith. This is what it means to be. This is the message of Christianity. Maybe I'll put it in, a, in an image, maybe. Um, I used to play video games with my sons a little bit more than I do now. They beat me now, so I don't play. Uh, but I used to play video games. When they were little, we used to play some of these games where you had to you know, uh, jump on a log and then jump on another log and then jump to the end and get, get through the, the finish line. And when kids are little, they're like, I, I do it, I do it, I do it. You know, and then you sit there for 30 minutes as they jump into the pit over and over again. <laughs> hey, can I help you with that? No, 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 I do it, I do it. Okay, okay, I'm gonna help you do this and you need to jump on this log and you're standing in front of the TV. This log right here, jump on this one. No, 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 no. And they jump before and after and whatever. What if I climb up here? No, listen to me. Jump on the log, then jump on the log and then come on the other side and you'll win. You're there forever, and finally, they just they start tears because you're telling them to do it over, and then finally, they're like, I give up, and they throw the, they throw the, the, the controller down, and I'm telling you, this is, this is the moment of openness for you, this surrender, because you can finally pick up the thing. Just watch. Here, come here. Jump on the log, jump on the log, and then you come out the other end, and they're like, oh, you did it. I'm telling you that that moment of surrender, that idea of surrender, you, is what it means to have faith in Jesus. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're saying, listen, the pathway that I've been going down all my life has been leading me, leading me into a pit. It keeps ending in my own death, and I cannot sort this out. And you will turn to Jesus when you finally realize, I can't make this work. You take it. That's what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus. You take it. And the consequence of that is peace. So it gives us peace with God. Peace with others. Now don't worry, you guys are looking at the clock and you're like, oh, that was a long first point. Okay, this the two, these two are shorter, I promise, all right? He gives us peace with others. I'm going to tell you one of my favorite jokes. Maybe you've heard it before. If you have, then shh. So there's a pastor, a doctor, a lawyer, and a little boy in an airplane. And they are flying to who knows where. I don't care. Something goes wrong with the plane, and the pilots 
jump out with two parachutes. There are only three parachutes left and four of them now on the plane. Pastor, doctor, lawyer, and little boy. So they have to stand around and figure out which one of us is gonna get a parachute. Doctor says, listen, I'm on my way to do some brain surgery and uh, you, you probably want me to live because by me living, it's gonna cause like, these, these, these other patients that I'm gonna be able to, to help. They're gonna live. So save my life and you're saving hundreds of lives. And they all look around and say, yeah, that, that's, good, that's good reason. So here, you take the first parachute. So there's two left for three people. So the lawyer steps up and he says, look, I am the smartest man in the world. So I am going to take a parachute because the world needs my smarts. Before anybody can say anything, he grabs a, one of the packs and he jumps out the window. The little boy and the pastor standing, the pastor says, listen, I've lived a long life. You have all your life ahead of you. I'll go down with the, I'll go down with the plane. You take this last parachute. The little boy says, interrupts him, says, oh, don't worry about it, pastor. The smartest man in the world just jumped out the door with my backpack. All right, so I like this joke because two reasons. Number one, lawyers. And uh, <laughs> number two, number two, it's a really good image for what I think actually is happening in, in, our, in our world today, that we, we all have a reason why it is that we think we deserve a backpack, why we are important enough to be saved. Uh, I brought this up a few weeks ago when I was talking about Donald Miller and his lifeboat imagery. We all think that there are a certain number of spots in the lifeboat in this world, and every, we have to give a reason for why it is that we are important enough to be valued high enough so that we can be in the lifeboat. So your reason might be because I'm beautiful, or I'm rich, or I'm successful, or I have a good education, or I'm not bald, or I'm not fat, or I am fat, or whatever. There's a reason that you think that makes you important. It's usually the thing you point to when someone mocks you. Oh, yeah, well, at least I'm not short. Well, at least I'm not fat. Whatever. There's, there's a thing you point to that makes you better than other people. You, you think that you're better than they are. In fact, I, when I was playing basketball when I was in high school, there was a school we played against, Mercer Island High School. Mercer Island is the snootiest area of Seattle, okay? It's beautiful. But it's snootiest area of Seattle, lots and lots of money. We used to beat them pretty regularly, even though they were a really awesome team. At the end of the game, their crowd would start chanting, that's all right, that's okay, you'll all work for us someday. <laughs> right. So uh, who cares if we're losing this basketball game? We're going to make it in life, and you're not because we're wealthy and we're important and valuable. That's the reason we belong in the lifeboat. Everybody's got something like this. Everybody's got something like this, right? So anyway, I was, I was, I was walking by uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas this last week with Mark Birch. We were traveling there to do some re uh, research on some church planning stuff. Anyway, so here's a picture of the beacon of hope and peace. Uh, there it is. It's beautiful. Aren't you inspired to hope and peace because of that beacon in Little Rock, Arkansas? Um, on it, it says, this is a, a tribute to everyone who's working to make peace happen. Uh, we can get there if we try. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, can we? It seems to me that the only way that we can get to hope and peace, to peace especially, is if somebody deals with the lifeboat problem. When somebody deals with the problem that I think I'm better than you because of these reasons, and you think you're better than me because of these reasons. Isn't that the root of racism and xenophobia and sexism? 
Chauvinism, isn't that the root of it? I'm better than you because I was born male. I'm better than you because I'm white or black or purple. I'm better than you because of whatever. So unless you can deal with that issue, the I'm better than you issue, you will not have peace. In fact, it's the cause of our friction. Does Jesus deal with that issue? The I'm better than you issue, you bet he does. How, all right? The gospel of Jesus basically says that you and I are equally wicked and have equal access to God. There's nothing in you that makes you better candidate for God's kingdom than anybody else. We're all equally trash, morally speaking, before him. So you have this in Romans 3, verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile, Babylonian, Canadian. Well, maybe. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your background, your family, tradition. It doesn't matter. You don't have a leg up when it comes to God. Galatians 3, 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. It's a, based upon a prayer that a Jewish freedman used to pray. God, I just want to thank you that I am not a Gentile, I am not a woman, and I am not a slave. Because the fact that I'm not is evidence that you like me better. And what Paul's saying is rubbish. Rubbish. None of those things make you more acceptable to God. We're all equally sinners and we are all equally capable of being saved. So the point is that peace between people is possible through the gospel because it lay... Levels the playing field. Maybe an illustration would help. Uh, I was traveling through the city of Denver just a few days ago with Mark Birch, one of our executive pastors, and we were coming back. Mark has been traveling a lot over the last couple of years, and so he has a, a pass to get into that club. You know, you know the club I'm talking about? Like the one that's hidden behind the doors? I, just, I think, I don't know what this one's called, the United Club or the, or the American Club or, or the Maple Club. I don't even know what it's called. But it's the one where if you've ever kind of stumbled in there before, the, the people sitting at the desk go, oh, I don't think you belong here. Why don't you just turn around and go out, out there, right? And I, anyway, Mark boldly walks in there and he can apparently have a, someone with him. And so I'm standing there in my snotty shirt, like, you know, all these guys in suits going by me. I'm looking around and they're like, um, are you lost? You know, the, no, I'm with him. And Mark's like, yeah, he's with me. Oh, okay, well, give me your, your ticket. I'm shaking their heads. I don't know how he's going to get in here. You go upstairs, you guys. <laughs> like, there's free Wi-Fi. There's free drinks, non-alcoholic drinks. There are free food up there. There's cheeses of various kinds, <laughs> right? I'm sitting in this room thinking, this is amazing, can you imagine, though, if I were sitting in that room and I got up to the top and said, I finally arrived, and I could look down at all the people who were in, suckers, look at how amazing I am. I'm in this club because of my magnificence. Of course not. How did I get in? The merit of another. Had nothing to do with me. Had to do with who I was with. 
You imagine Mark going down and starting inviting everybody to come in? Hey, you, come over here. You found this, this is the grubbiest guys, guys who look like me. You come with me. Come on, come on. It's fine. Yeah, I don't want to dress for it. Fine, just come with me. You can get in. He, he starts bringing them all up, and we're sitting next to each other. Can you imagine if I looked over to the other guy and go, uh, disgusting. How did you get in here? I would never do this. Why not? Because I got in the same way he did. Grace was attached to the guy who brought us in. We're just a couple of slobs eating cheese in magnificence. Isn't this what the Christian is? Just a bunch of slobs eating cheese with Jesus, right? We should be, listen to me, we should be the humblest, least insecure, right? Most peaceful people around. I'm not better than anybody for any reason. We're nothings who've received everything. We can have peace with others because of this. Here's the last one, peace with, within. I don't know about you, but I brought up before about how I sometimes sat this summer and by myself and would be reading and sometimes I'd look out the window and I, I struggle with anxious feelings about my kids, about finances, about work, about how things, it happens frequently to me. And I don't, I don't know what to do with those feelings Peace within is very hard to find. And do people do look for it in yoga or, or, or meditation or solitude? Go away and be on your own and do these stretches and it'll all be better. Oh, okay. But it's not better. Then it just comes back. At best, it's fleeting. You might feel that way for a couple of minutes because you get those endorphins going because you just did your run. But then, you know, 15 minutes later, all of this stuff starts flooding back into your mind and you're just not sure how to deal with all that. Peace within is very difficult to find. The question I have, is it possible? So when I asked at the beginning, is it possible to have peace in the midst of the busyness of life instead of in the absence of it? Do you hear what I'm saying there? Like, I get it. We can go away. We can do our little activities that are, that are like life bringing. And then we come back to things and we're supposed to be like drain, it drains all of our energy. And then we have to go back and refuel. And then we come back and we drains all our energy. But can you go back into the busyness of life with all of the difficulties and stuff and have some kind of peace in the midst of the storm? not just in the absence of it. Well, I think the Bible says yes on this one. Isaiah 20, so follow me here. Isaiah 26, verse three. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. So there's a promise there that peace will come to those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in the Lord. But what specifically do I need to trust in what character traits of God do I need to believe and trust in in order to have this peace? Well, I think Jesus kind of addresses this in Luke chapter 12. He talks about worry. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, about your body, what you'll wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. He considered the ravens, the most common bird around in those. He said, look outside and look at the pigeons. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. In fact, they've got nothing. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Or consider how the wildflowers grow. You know, the ones that you just pass by as you're driving on the side of the road. They're everywhere. 
They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And don't, don't set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father, your father knows that you need them. Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do you hear what he's saying? He's basically saying you guys are more important than birds and, and, and grass. God has the power, right? The transcendent almighty God has the power to care for you. And the imminent God has the concern to hold you. And if you believe both of those things, if you know that those are true, why are you worried? Why are you anxious? What should you do when those feelings come? Well, Paul, Philippians 4, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, appealing to the God, right? The God who has power and care for you, with thanksgiving, present your request to this God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great line? Will guard your hearts and minds. God establishes a sentry at the edge of your heart and mind, and he says, Thou shall not pass! Right? Love it. The reason that you and I don't have inner peace is often because we think we're on our own to handle life's waves, but we aren't. Jesus is there. He has power and he has care. So let me finish just with a little story from the scriptures. Um, one of my favorites. Disciples, Jesus says one night, go over to the other side and I'll catch up with you later. So they go out, storm comes up on the lake and they're trying to paddle real hard. Jesus comes down from the mountain now. He's been having a quiet time and he starts walking on the lake. As you do, you know. He gets near the boat and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. He's like, oh, it's not a ghost, it's just me. I'm walking on the water here. You gotta love Peter at this moment. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Most of you would never even ask that. He did. Isn't that great? Tell me to come to you. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water. And he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you little faith. Why do you, why do you doubt? Doubt what? That you can do this by looking at me. It occurs to me that you and I are freaked out of our minds and at no peace because we are looking at the waves and not the one who's walking on top of them. So lift your gaze. And you will see a transcendent and imminent God there to care for you. Hmm. And that's a better peace. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to take these things and um, feel them. Father, when we talk about stuff like peace, it is a feeling word, right? <laughs> it's something that we need to experience and need to know. You say that you will guard our hearts and minds with the with this peace that passes all understanding. So I pray that you'd station that sentry. You put that Gandalf on the edge of our hearts and minds, Father, as we pray to you and ask you dearly to take care of the things that so trouble us. We love you. We're so thankful, Father, that you care for us. We are of more value than ravens or grass or anything. 
Convince us of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.